Good day to our listeners on Waterbach Stereo, listening to Van Felden Duffy Legal News. We're going to have our discussion today on uh, Skype because of the lockdown. So uh, I hope the quality of the sound is uh, good enough for all of you to uh, enjoy our program. Remember our email address, info at vvd.ca.za. Welcome to send us your questions and uh, comments. Today, uh, my uh, uh, colleague here on the panel will be Janis Ulifi. We will be discussing a couple of issues that uh, we hope you will find interesting. My name is Volker Kruger. I'm a lawyer at Van Felden Duffy, together with Janis uh, here in uh, Rustenburg. And uh, yeah, the first question that I will be dealing with is whether you can change your marital regime from a marriage in community of property to out of community of property after you've got married. So we will try to uh, answer that uh, question. Then Janis uh, is going to ask me a couple of questions on the topic of how much money it costs to die in South Africa. So I'll try to give you some advice and some guidelines in respect of the cost implications, the tax implications, etc. in respect of the winding up of a deceased estate. Then another topic that we quite regularly deal with and that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have also come across is the whole issue of a food steward's clause in the contract of sale. For example, if there's a crack in the wall or there's a leaking roof, when can you claim compensation from the seller or even maybe cancel that contract of sale if there is such a latent defect in the property? And then finally, a topic that uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners have also heard of or read about as of late in the news is the whole issue of force majeure in a contract um, that you can use as a contracting party to be excused from performing and specifically with reference now to the national lockdown. So please uh, stay tuned to our program today. Also remember that you can listen to our podcast of the previous programs that you can find on our website vvd.co.za is the website address and you will find there's a media section and under that media section there is uh, uh, an option there, Waterberg Stereo Podcast, that you can listen to. I think there are a couple of very interesting and informative discussions that you can maybe uh, have a look at on our website, or you can also just access our website and do a search with Waterberg Stereo, and you will also find those podcasts. The first question we are dealing with today is whether you can change your marital status after having gotten married. Let's say you got married in community of property and now you change your mind and you rather want to be made out of community of property. Can you then simply sign a new contract? Is that possible? Or uh, would you have to do something else? Now, the answer to this question is unfortunately that you would have to bring a high court application to change your marital regime from in community of property to out of community of property. And there's a process prescribed in our law that you have to follow. You have to, for example, give notice to all the creditors of your intention to bring the application. And uh, there are also substantial cost implications, of course, if you go to the court with that application. So unfortunately, it's not that simple. You can't just sign a new or sign a marriage contract. You need to need to bring that court application as such to change your marital regime. So um, 
yeah, next, next question that we are often asked in this um, regard is what happens if you get married without a marriage contract? Answer to that question is that you are then by law automatically married in community of property. So uh, that's why it's advisable to rather sign a marriage contract if you don't want to get uh, married in community of property before you get married. And uh, yeah, next question would be uh, sort of related uh, question is uh, what if you sign a marriage contract before your marriage, but it is only registered at the deeds office after your marriage? Is that a problem? Answer to that question is that it is actually not a problem at all. As long as you sign the marriage contract before you get married, then it's okay. Thereafter, the uh, notary, the attorney that uh, attended to the marriage contract must make sure that it is indeed registered at the deeds office within three months. But even if that happens after you got married, that's not a problem at all. So you can actually sign the marriage contract today and uh, get married tomorrow. And then two weeks later, whatever the case might be, the marriage contract can be registered at the deeds office. Next question is, you signed a marriage contract and want to change it before you are getting married. Is that possible? That is actually not a problem. So you can just sign a marriage contract that amends the initial marriage contract that you signed, the first one, or that cancels it and replaces it, replaces, uh, it with the new uh, marriage contract. So that's also actually in order. Then I'm also often asked what would my advice be should uh, one get married in community of property, out of community of property, with or without the accrual system. Now my answer there is normally the following. I always advise clients to rather get married out of community of property. For example, that then means that if you uh, run into financial problems, that the creditors can only attach the assets of one of the spouses that incurred the debt. In other words, not all the uh, assets of the joint estate. So that's one of the major disadvantages of a marriage in community of property. Also, if one of the spouses passes away, then all the assets of the joint estate would be part of the deceased estate, which makes the whole winding up process of the deceased estate more cumbersome and uh, more expensive. So also from that point of view, it is, in my opinion, better to get married out of community of property. So yeah, once you have decided to agree with that advice and uh, decide to get married out of community of property, you also need to decide whether you want to do it with the accrual system or without the accrual system. The accrual system would be advisable where you decide to share with your spouse the growth of your estates. In other words, the accruals of your estate then you should go for the accrual system. If, however, you want to keep your assets and liabilities uh, separate or together, or specifically actually your assets separately or together, then you should rather get married out of community of property without the accrual system. So that's sort of a guideline that I normally give my clients in terms of a decision that they have to take um, as to whether they should get married in or out of community of property and whether they should go for the accrual system or not. And yeah, the other um, big advice I think in conclusion is that you should make sure that you consult your attorney before you get married so that you sign a, a marriage contract, an anti-nuptial contract, before you get married. Because if you don't, then you would be automatically married in community of property and to change that 
is a costly exercise because you have to bring a court application to do so. Right, the next uh, topic is how much money it costs to die in South Africa, and that is specifically the heading that appeared in the businesstech.co.za in an article that deals with that question, how much uh, it costs to die in South Africa. So, uh, yeah, Janis and I will have a chat about uh, the specific topic, and uh, Janis is going to ask me a couple of questions. It's uh, uh, area of the law which I regularly uh, work with, so hopefully I can uh, answer all Janis's questions. I'm a bit uh, nervous. Janis, uh, please don't uh, make the questions uh, too difficult. I won't, Volker. You can relax as always. Okay. Well, go for it. What's your first question? Yeah, Volker, um, I've read the article. I'm sure you read it as well. Um, to my mind, it was it's basically a warning, um, I would say, to individuals to sort of urge them to make sure there's enough um, money or cash in their estates when they pass away um, so that assets won't, for example, have to be sold or that the heirs would have to pay in. And I think it's a very good article. It, it touches on some very valid points. But like you said, now there's a few questions I would like to ask you and uh, get your opinion and uh, more experienced opinion on the topics as well. Um, first and foremost, it, it might sound silly, but maybe just explain to the listeners what is meant when, when we as attorneys say that there's a cash shortfall on the estate. Um, should we worry what, what is meant by that? Yeah, I think it's maybe important to understand the difference between an insolvent estate and an estate where there is a cash shortfall. Uh, an estate where there is a cash shortfall is not necessarily insolvent. In other words, the assets might still exceed the liabilities, but there's not enough cash in the yeah. estate to cover the claims of, for example, the creditors and the cost of winding up of the estate, etc. So in such a case, one would then have to either sell some assets to make sure that there is enough cash available, or the beneficiaries of the estate can make a plan to use their own funds, or for example, also to borrow funds to pay in the cash shortfall so that the sale of assets can be prevented. So uh, yeah, from, from an estate planning point of view, it's uh, often a prudent exercise to maybe uh, have a look at the cash that will be available in your estate upon your death and to make sure that there will be enough money available to cover the claims of creditors and the cost of winding up of the estate, etc., as I mentioned before. And what uh, people then often do to solve the problem is to take out life insurance, because if there's life insurance that pays out, then obviously those funds can then indeed be used to cover uh, the cash shortfall. Yeah, I've heard that as well, Falk, and I think it's important, like you said, it's, it doesn't really mean the estate is insolvent. There's basically just not enough liquidity to pay all the um, claims and the expenses. And you and you um, mentioned to the costs of winding up at the deceased estate. Maybe just explain what would be the typical um, expenses part of, of administering a deceased estate? What are the costs that clients should um, cater for then and keep into account? For the executor's remuneration, there's a prescribed tariff of 3.5% uh, plus VAT on the gross value of the estate. In other words, that's the total value of all the assets in the estate, not the, the net value. So that's one uh, cost implication uh, that is relevant. Then there's also a 6% um, executor's remuneration that is relevant 
on after-death income, for example, interest that you earn or rental income. The executors, they're also entitled to that 6% on those amounts. Then uh, you would also have to pay the master's fees, for example. There's some advertisements costs that have to be covered for the advertisements to creditors, etc. Uh, there would also be valuation costs. Sometimes there are also costs to pay accountants and auditors to do the final tax returns and uh, final financial statements, if that might be necessary, uh, etc. So there are unfortunately numerous uh, cost implications that are relevant. Another one that I can maybe mention is that if there is a bond reset over a property that has to be cancelled, there would be some bond cancellation costs. Or if there's a fixed property that has to be transferred to a purchaser thereof or to a beneficiary of the estate, then uh, those costs obviously also have to be uh, covered from the estate if it's transferred to the beneficiaries. But if it's sold out of the estate to a purchaser, then the purchaser would normally pay those transfer costs. So yeah, um, in summary, I would I would say there are a couple of cost implications uh, that are relevant, and often I think people underestimate the uh, cost implications of the winding up of an estate. Yeah, that's a lot of um, expenses you mentioned now, um, Volker. I think that's where the problem slips in. Uh, you know, the client or the general public, they won't know about those costs and they didn't properly cater then for that case. And it's interesting now, um, I don't think a lot of people know that the, the transfer fees or the conveyancing fees for the movable property, that's not part of the 3.5%. Um, and I'm wondering now, in your, in your experience, is there specific costs that you have come across when you discuss them with clients, for example, where they were really shocked, where they definitely didn't think about it or they they found it hard to believe that it's part of the deceased estate um, expenses. I'm not sure if there's any any specific expenses that um, jump to mind now in, in your experience. Often uh, people are a bit surprised that where you are made in community of property, the whole joint estate is part of the deceased estate and the 3,5% executor's remuneration is then also calculated on the total asset value. In other words, basically the assets of the deceased spouse and the surviving spouse's assets because there is only one joint estate. I mean, that's one of the major disadvantages of a marriage in community of property and why we advise our clients to rather get married out of community of property. So that's one example maybe where um, people are a bit surprised that those uh, assets are also included and that those costs are higher than they probably expected. Yeah, that's going to make a significant, um, or significant difference, for if you didn't account for that. Uh, maybe on the topic of taxes, I think we all know about estate duty, which we never want to pay. Um, but is there any other taxes that become liable? How does taxes work? You pass away in the middle of a financial year. You certainly still got to owe SARS some money or SARS owes you money. Um, you're just general in taxes. How is that sorted uh, in, in the administration process? Income tax that is due uh, on date of death uh, obviously has to be paid to the receiver. And then any uh, income of the estate after the date of death also has to be declared. And there would also be tax payable on that. For example, as I mentioned before, uh, interest that you might earn on investments or uh, rental income or whatever the case might be, that's also then uh, taxable as income tax. Then uh, estate duty, as you mentioned, is another uh, headache potentially for a deceased estate and for the beneficiaries of the estate. However, there's some good news. Whatever the surviving spouse inherits, 
is exempted from state duty. So the surviving spouse, if she inherits everything or he inherits everything, then there would be no estate duty payable in respect of that. Whatever the surviving spouse doesn't inherit, which, uh, for example, goes to the children, is then uh, taxed at a rate of 20% of the value, uh, in other words, net value, whatever is left in the estate, and it goes to the beneficiaries. And uh, there, there is, however, a primary rebate that is important to keep in mind of 3.5 million rand that can be deducted from the value of the estate. And only on the balance that is left, the 20% is then levied. Also keep in mind that whatever, where, where, where the surviving spouse inherits everything and it goes to the children, for example, thereafter, the 3.5 million rand that isn't used in the first dying's estate is then transferred to the survivor's estate. And then uh, the total amount would be 7 million rand in the survivor's estate, which would be available as a, a primary rebate and as a deduction that can be used. So it's only if the net value of the survivor's estate exceeds the 7 million rand that the 20% uh, estate duty would be relevant. So yeah, one tax is income tax. Another one is estate duty. Uh, another one that is uh, relevant is capital gains tax uh, from uh, time to time. There are also states where there would be capital gains tax payable. The basic principle is that when you pass away, you're actually deemed to have sold all your capital assets, like you would sell capital assets whilst you are still alive. So there would potentially also be some capital gains tax payable. But there also, there's an exemption. Whatever the surviving spouse gets is exempted. So there would also be no capital gains tax payable. It would only be relevant if it goes to the children. Another tax is a transfer duty, but that fortunately is not payable when uh, there's a fixed property tra uh, transferred to the beneficiaries of the estate, then there would be no transfer duty uh, payable. It's only where a purchaser buys the property out of the deceased estate that transfer duty would be payable, but that would then normally be uh, settled by the uh, purchaser and not be the problem of the beneficiaries. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah. maybe some comments in respect of the various taxes that are relevant where there's a deceased estate. Yeah, that's quite a lot of uh, tax that one would have to pay um, at, at a specific instance. And talk about, we've talked now about expenses and debts. And I've had clients in the past that specifically want to stipulate in their will, for example, that a certain property must be transferred to a free of the debt. Um, Sometimes they will say that the debt will first have to be paid. And other times we have clients who sort of think they can write off the debt in the will. Um, for example, there's a car that you still owe money on, but that car must be bequeathed to my son, but free of any any debts. Um, is it necessary to stipulate that in the will? And then the second question, which I think has an easy answer, but um, is it possible to sort of write off your debt in, in the will to say, you know, uh, uh, can you stipulate, maybe I can rephrase my question, can you stipulate in your will that certain creditors won't um, have to be paid or that you know, they'll sort of forfeit their claim um, against your deceased estate? No, unfortunately, you can't do that. So the creditors would still have a claim against the deceased estate and that claim would first have to be settled before any beneficiaries can inherit something from the deceased estate. You can, uh, however, write off a debt in the sense that you stipulate that any amount that is due to the estate by, for example, a child is written off. So let's say you borrowed your 
child some money to help him with his uh, studies or whatever the case might be and you decide that you do not want that child to pay back the loan to your estate after your death then you can in your will stipulate and that actually happens quite often that the debt is then written off yeah. so uh, that's how you can for example help your children or whoever who might have some outstanding debts um, to get back to your first question, if you in your will, for example, bequeath a car uh, to your son and there's still financing outstanding, uh, an amount due to the bank in respect of that car, if you don't specify that the son must pay the outstanding debt before he can get the car, then it must be paid from your estate. So in such a case, the son would inherit the car free of that debt. Same applies to a, a house. If you, for example, stipulate that your wife must inherit your house and there's still an outstanding bond due in respect of that house, then the estate would have to settle that uh, debt from the funds in the remainder of the estate and the wife would then inherit that uh, fixed property, that house, free from that debt. So that's actually rather important to keep in mind. I've uh, come across a couple of cases where people didn't realize that if they bequeath something to a certain beneficiary and they don't mention anything about the debt, that the debt must then be paid from the estate funds and the beneficiary must get that asset free from their debt. So uh, often uh, that was actually not the intention. Often uh, uh, an estate planner would want the beneficiary to take over the debt together with the asset, and then you need to specifically specify that in the will. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point for that. So payment of the debt obviously happens automatic, and then once again, that's why it's so important to ensure that there's enough liquidity then um, in your deceased estate, uh, and where it will, will be uh, very costly if you then had an assumption like you described now that I'm giving my property to my to my children on the basis that they're going to take over the debt and you then didn't cater for that additional expense in your deceased estate, you might have a problem. I agree, um, especially where the beneficiaries are still dependents of you, where you maintain those children, for example, let's say it's minor children, etc., then I think it's specifically important to make sure that there's enough cash. If uh, the beneficiaries of the estate are really self-supportive, in other words, they can look after themselves, then uh, estate planners often take the approach that whatever their child might inherit is sort of a, a bonus. He or she doesn't really need the inheritance to look after herself. So I'm not now going to spend a lot of money on, on insurance, life insurance or uh, do any specific planning to, to make sure that there's enough cash. Uh, it's something that they'll just have to sort out and whatever they inherit is basically a bonus. So I think that's where the differentiation often comes in. Whether your children are still dependent or your spouse is dependent on you, then I think you must really make sure that you have enough cash in your estate. If that is however not the case, then it's sort of a different approach that one can take. Yeah, that's very interesting and I think very helpful, Volker. That sort of wraps up the questions I had for you. Um, so once again, thank you. Right. Thank you, Johannes. Uh, okay, that brings us to the next uh, topic, which uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, questions. And I'm not going to promise you that I'll keep it uh, easy because, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's uh, put your knowledge on this topic to the test. I know that you've... Uh, often dealt with these issues at our offices, so I know that you are a bit of an expert in this 
field of the law. It's, it's a food stewards clause that we're going to discuss for our listeners. Uh, food stewards clause. Uh, maybe I should first ask you, uh, Janis, what is a, a food stewards clause for in case some of our listeners have not uh, come across this term? Um, yeah, Volker, a food stewards clause would normally find in, in agreements for property transactions, although it's becoming more and more um, generalized in, in all the contracts. Uh, so the essence of a food stewards clause is that the purchaser buys the property as is. Né? That's normally the way it's phrased. You buy something as is. And what it means is that you buy the property with all the defects um, that are part of the property. So regardless of whether or not the purchaser knew about the property, is buying the property as is, and the seller then won't be liable to rectify any defects as long as the seller then didn't know about the defects. Okay. Um, so let's say uh, there are some cracks in the wall. Uh, that the purchaser finds or there is a leaking roof that uh, the purchaser realizes the house has after the first rains after he moved into the property. Can he then sue the seller if there's a footsteps clause in the contract of sale? Yeah, well, it's, it's um, interesting and important that you refer now to the types of defects. Um, I beg you to answer your question first and foremost. Yes, you can always sue someone, but it's a different question as to whether or not you will be um, successful. So it's not really for the footstool's clause necessarily that we differentiate between the types of defects, but there does exist um, two major types of, of defects that we refer to as latent and patent defects. So the patent defects would be something that you can immediately see when you walk into the house. Um, for example, the house doesn't have windows or part of the roof is missing um, in Afrikaans, someone say that this forehand liggend, the oomlik twee in die eindom instap. And if the purchaser then buys that property, then surely he was aware of the problem. And if he then wants the seller to rectify those defects, he's going to have to tell the seller, listen, I don't like it that there's no windows. Please um, rectify it. And if he buys the property without asking that from the seller, it's deemed that, you know, he bought the property automatically as is. It's not really necessary to have a food stewards clause for, for patent defects. But the problem arises where, for example, like you mentioned now, the leaking roof. Um, another example can maybe be drains that, that keeps on blocking. Um, but it's something that you won't immediately see when you view the property as a potential purchaser for Kai. Normally, um, you know, when I would just started to deal with these types of matters, I remember that as latent defects, it's effects that you become aware of later so that helps you to remember the term latent defects and even in these instances then the um, effect of the food stewards clause will be that the purchaser won't be able to, to um, keep the seller liable even though the purchaser wasn't aware of the property um, and that is in essence the effect of the food stewards clause is there to protect the seller the important point then being the seller shouldn't have had knowledge of the food stewards clause, uh, of the of the defect rather. Um, so if the seller knew that the roof is leaking and he fraudulently didn't tell the purchaser about that, then he's not going to be um, protected by the food stewards clause. But once again, that becomes then um, the duty of the purchaser to sort of prove that the seller actually had knowledge about the specific latent defect thing. But all in all, um, yeah, that's 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 more or less how the food stores clause work um, to give that protection to the seller to say you bought the property as is. Sorry, I didn't know about this defect. 
uh, it's not my problem. Okay. In other words, the seller basically says he doesn't give any guarantees in respect of the condition of the property. If there's a latent defect that he does, didn't uh, know about, then uh, it's the purchaser's problem. He can't uh, claim anything from the seller for that for that uh, latent defect. Yeah, exactly, Paul. Um, that's that's precisely it. Okay. I guess uh, in some cases it might be a bit difficult to prove that a seller knew about a latent defect because how how do you prove that? Uh, but yeah, maybe in the case of a leaking roof, you would be able to convince a court that the seller knew about it if. Uh, um, yeah, the seller, for example, lived in the house for a couple of years and he sold the property to you and there's a leaking roof and um, uh, he then argues that he didn't know about it. He might have a problem uh, to convince the court that he didn't know about it uh, because obviously uh, it must have rained sooner or later whilst he was living in the house. Uh, I think in such a case, he would uh, probably be, be able to to convince the court that uh, the seller was aware of the defect and that there was, in other words, uh, fraudulent activity basically on the seller's side. But anyway, let's maybe move on um, to the Consumer Protection Act. Am I right in saying that that mm -hmm. act is also relevant for the food stewards clause? And I, I think there are certain cases where you cannot rely on the food stewards clause uh, as a seller. Am I right? Well, Volker, um, once again, <laughs> you're 100%. Um, so the Consumer Protection Act, obviously from the wording of the Act, it's it's quite clear it's there to protect consumers. In terms of Section 55 of the Act, um, every consumer has a right to receive goods in, in a good quality or um, free from any defects. Then, So if the, if the roof leaks and the Consumer Protection Act applies, then the seller won't be able to, to rely on the foods to its clause because you can't contract out of the Consumer Protection Act. The question that will then just um, have to be answered is, does the Consumer Protection Act apply to your specific transaction? And there, one would firstly have to establish is the seller, and we saw that the property is a supplier in terms of the um, CPA, the Consumer Protection Act, which uh, the definition more or less says it's someone who sells you goods or services in the ordinary course of his or her business. In the property market, I think the best and easiest examples would be, for example, a developer or a property speculator. And, you know, these are people that, that would sell your property in the ordinary course of their business. Um, so that's sort of the first box tick there. Then you would have to be able to prove that you, as the purchaser of the property, you were also a, a consumer in terms of the CPA. Then. So there are a lot of technicalities um, of who qualifies as a consumer and who not. But um, for purposes of, of, of our discussion today, we can sort of accept that where a natural purchaser um, or natural person rather purchases a property is going to be regarded as a consumer in terms of the Consumer Protection Act. Um, and he will then deserve the protection of the CPA meaning the seller won't enjoy the protection of the foods to its clause. So, yeah, it's very, very important um, to know when the CPA applies and when not. I've heard a couple of people say that the foods to its clause is no longer enforceable because of the CPA. But that obviously, based on what you're saying now, is, is not true. It depends on the circumstances. It's not enforceable as a general rule by the developer as such, or, um, for example, a property speculator. But another person that just simply sells his house, for example, where he's lived for a couple of years, so it's not part of his business to sell the house, and uh, he could still 
uh, add the footstools clause in uh, in his agreement and enjoy the protection of the clause. Do you agree? Yeah, Volker, I absolutely agree. Um, we can sort of accept that footstools clauses are standard in all the agreements now. So you will have it in the agreement. It's almost certainly going to form part of the agreement. Um, it boils down to, if you look at the CPI, the definition of, of the supplier that I've already explained now, there's not really certainty or agreement between um, attorneys and the legislators yet what is really part of a, a supplier's ordinary course of business. There's, yes. there's no specific definition of that in the Act. Um, so you're... I'm 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 part of the the um, school that thinks if you do something only once, you sell a property once, it's not part of your ordinary course of business. But obviously, if you're the attorney for the purchaser um, or for the seller, rather, you're going to try your best um, to to disprove that and to say you yeah you sold it only once, but this is part of your business. And I've had numerous discussions and arguments about that with with um, my colleagues in the office, especially. With regards to second-hand cars, selling of a second-hand car, which which might not be relevant for today's topic, but um, it definitely definitely provides um, heated arguments. I understand. All right, thank you. I think that sheds some light on the legal principles related to the so-called uh, footstools clause. Um, yeah. Then, mm. uh, Johannes, you're not finished yet. I'm going to ask you a couple of more questions on a very um, uh, a relevant topic for for these days uh, with the lockdown uh, etc because of the covid-19 uh, virus uh, a lot of our listeners have probably also Good. heard of the force majeure um, principle that is being applied in respect of contracts etc there was for example a report in the business day uh, about this topic the heading there is escom to declare force majeure on power contracts and then in the report they uh, they uh, mentioned ESCOM has 20-year contracts with the most independent power producers to pay for the energy they deliver. And in that respect, ESCOM now decided to use the force majeure uh, argument to get out of uh, some of the terms of that um, contract. But yeah, maybe as a starter, uh, once again, um, what does force majeure mean? And, and is it the same as an act of God. Volker, um, so the term force majeure, it, it translates to a superior force or a greater force. It's, it's a Latin term. Um, from a legal point of view or a contractual point of view, it basically just means that there are some unforeseen circumstances that makes it impossible to render performance in terms of the specific contract. So yes, it can be an act of God, but it's not necessarily restricted to acts of God. It can also be any act by, by people or by mankind that would make it impossible to perform in terms of uh, your specific contract that you're dealing with. Okay. And then maybe some examples? Yeah. Um, the most common examples, I would think, is then specifically related to acts of God, which would be a tsunami or earthquake, um, a volcanic eruption, basically anything that you know, it's unforeseen and makes it impossible to render performance, like I said, in, in, in respect of your contract. Um, but also something like a war or civil unrest that um, would, in my mind, also constitute a force majeure. 
Um, and that's clearly not an act of God. It's, it's, it's mankind doing what mankind does once again. Um, and as long as it is unforeseen, you can argue that it's unforeseen and it's going to make performance um, impossible, then it's, it's a force majeure. Okay. Yeah, and then there have also been some articles in the press reporting on some of the mines in the country also declaring force majeure, just like Eskom, as I mentioned before. So, so what does that wow. mean and what is the effect thereof? Yeah, for in the simplest um, form, like I said, now the mines basically gave notice to say that um, you know, to whoever they're contracting with, that they are experiencing a force majeure and they won't be able to perform. Um, due to this force majeure or the intervening impossibility to use plain English language. Um, I'm quite aware of, of a lot of mines in the Rustenburg area um, that have issued these notices um, to, to the contracting parties. And essentially what they're saying is, uh, we're sorry, we, we, we won't be able to perform whatever is happening now, which would most probably be um, due to the lockdown. This is out of our control. It's unforeseen. Um, it's not our fault. And, and, they will be excused from performing in terms of that contract. And obviously, the, the other party can can uh, go to court or can write a letter back and, and say, I don't think this is a force majeure. But in the case of the lockdown, I think it is quite clear um, that it, it does constitute a force majeure. And the mines will, in my opinion, then be excused from, from rendering performance for as long as the lockdown prevails. Okay, so that's then the effect. So the other contracting party can then not claim, for yeah. example, damages or um, claim cancellation of the agreement because of you know the breach of the agreement by the failure to perform because the failure to perform is excused because of the force majeure. Yeah, exactly. Focus so you would claim um, damages in terms of the contract if there was a breach of the contract, but where there's a force majeure. There's no real breach of the contract and the other party hasn't breached any of his obligations and it's just impossible to render performance. So yeah, you won't you won't have a claim for damages there. Okay. So maybe another example. Let's say there is a construction company and uh, they're supposed to finish the building of a factory by the end of April. And uh, now they cannot uh, work because of the lockdown. It would be illegal to work. I guess physically they could still work, but it would be uh, illegal. So, so what options would they then ha have? Would the same principles then also apply? Yeah, Volker, the exact same principles would apply. You mentioned now that it's, it's, it would be illegal to perform. Um, there is case law that differentiates between um, you know, intervening impossibility and an intervening illegality, but the consequences are more or less the same. You will be excused from, from rendering performance. I think it's a bit bit of a too technical discussion to have today. Um, but yeah, in your example, the first step would be always to, to first peruse your contract and look what the contract says. So most contracts these days will have a clause um, dealing with force majeure or dealing with scenarios where it will be impossible for one or either of the parties to perform. And then it is very important um, for if the contract provides guidelines or process to be followed, that that process must be complied with. Generally, um, the contracts will require one of the parties who experiences the force majeure to give a written notice or just any form of a notice to the other party to let them know I'm experiencing this type of force majeure, whatever it might be. Um, you might have to stipulate 
um, how long you think you would be affected by the force majeure, maybe what you try to um, prevent the force majeure from occurring, there you will sort of let the contract be your guideline of what must be set out in that notice, um, or if a notice is required in any event. Should you not have such a clause in your contract, I would still advise uh, give a notice to the other party and um, as a form of common courtesy and that everyone stays French. You don't want to only realize two or three months later, you know, sorry, I couldn't have performed because of a force majeure. Let, let the other party know that would surely be to everyone's benefit. And then, yeah, if the parties once again agree it is a force majeure, then the general rule will once again apply. And um, whoever excuses or whoever um, cannot perform will be excused from rendering performance in your contract. So the builder, in your example, Falker, will be excused uh, for his late performance. He won't be able to finish the building works in April because it's, it's literally just impossible for him to do so. Okay. Makes sense. So the force majeure uh, defense sort of can actually be used whether the contract caters for it or, or not. Am I right? But if the contract does cater for it, then obviously, as you said, you must make sure that you comply with the relevant requirements of the clause in the agreement, for example, by giving notice. Yeah, okay, that's correct. So if, if the contract does provide, um, you know, something, some sort of guideline in the instance of force majeure, you must oblige with the contract, comply with the contract, and do what the contract says. If nothing is in the contract, you're not going to sit without a remedy. Um, the legal principles will still be to your benefit and, and um, come to your aid. It's just important to understand there that if the contract governs this uh, specific topic, you must give preference to the wording of the contract. If the contract required you to give notice, you cannot ignore the contract and just claim force majeure. Because um, then you are effectively in breach of the agreement uh, of the or the contract, even though there is a force majeure, and we just said um, you can't really be in breach because it's impossible to perform, but you will be in breach because you didn't give the um, relevant required notice. Okay, yeah, thanks, Janus. I think that's all that we have uh, time for. So I think there was a good discussion on the whole uh, issue of force majeure and when you can use that to be excused from performing and uh, I think the message also is that this whole lockdown problem uh, in the country is certainly one valid form of force majeure that the contracting party can rely on. Yeah, Thanks for listening to us and uh, make sure that you tune in again next week uh, Wednesday between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock and then there's a, another version of the program Friday evenings between 7 o'clock and uh, 8 o'clock. Remember our email address, info at vvd.co.za.